save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome to Herd Tell. It is August the 12th. That's a Friday, folks. You made it. Congratulations. Welcome to Friday. It's the end of the week. Glad to have you along with us for this edition of Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. We're going to turn down the noise on a couple of different things that are going on out there in the world, especially the news media that's just had a crazy loud week. Uh, but we're going to take a step away from the politics from one big story. Guy up in Michigan made his own internet service provider because he couldn't get AT&T and Comcast to give him internet service for less than $50,000 worth of hookup fees. Great story up there. A little Yankee ingenuity to be on the program today. Also, uh, at the end of the show, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to end on a good note. This one comes from a good friend of ours, Rufus Hickok. He's a great writer, Ordinary-Times.com, writes a great Sunday column every Sunday for us. He highlights a charity up in New York City that's using food to help take care of people. We always love highlighting stories like this. Great couple up there doing amazing things with food and not just any food, not your soup kitchen fare, chef quality food for folks. Really cool story. We'll go to that in just a little bit. We're going to have two different interview segments today. Let me tell you about the first one, and then we'll talk about a special one. Uh, Alexander Jalowian is our main guest today. Going to talk about Africa. Africa, as we all know, has a long history of people coming in from the outside, exploiting what they want, getting what they want, and taking it out. There's a new players in this game, but it's a very old game. And the new players are the world powers be China, Russia, other countries, but especially China's really investing in Africa. What can Africa do about it? What can the rest of the world do about it to prevent their imperialistic ambitions in Africa? We'll talk to Alexander Jaloy and another great Young Voices contributor in just a little bit on the program. Also, something we haven't done in a while, but we want to get back to it. We've been talking about it on the show. We've been teasing it, as they say in the biz. We've been working on this. We're really excited to get back to it. Because of the way this program is structured for radio and podcasting and YouTube, even though we give our guests a lot more time than a lot of shows do, usually 20 to 30 minutes, give or take, you still can't get into all the stuff we want to get into. Kind of miss doing the old podcast stuff. By the way, we got 36 of the old podcasts up wherever you're listening or watching this program right now on. Just go look for them under Hurtel Podcast. There's a playlist on YouTube of them, too. We want to get back to some of those because there's some things going on in the world that we really want to deep dive. The first one is ready to go. It's going to be out this weekend. We've got to talk to our friend Chris Schlock. He was at CPAC Dallas in person. We're going to skip the national narratives. We're going to get into those viral moments people saw on their social media feeds, the big names, what was going on, the controversies, the newsmaking items. Then this particular clip, we're going to talk about that Brandon Straka thing where he dressed up as a prisoner in the cage. Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene came in. It was all, in his own words, performance art. But did you know this went on for hours? And did you know it was part of a bigger program of attacking another sitting congressman to his face while he was sitting there? This is a lot more to this story because Chris was there and he can explain it to us. We're going to give you a snippet of that long-form conversation that's coming this weekend. Really proud to be getting back to those deep dives. We've already got a couple of them lined up and recorded. You're going to love it. Got one on Machiavelli we got coming up. It's going to be a lot of fun things like that. Now, uh, first, though, let's talk about how we ourselves consume media. We talk about accountability. We talk about the media. One of the reasons we started this program is because we wanted to turn down the noise in the news cycle, get to things that really matter. If we're going to do that, though. we got to start with the variable in that. You and me, how we consume the news is very much on our own heads. See, here's the thing with technology. We have now reached a place 
where you can tailor and make your news consumption exactly what you want it to be. You can only watch what you want to watch. You can only hear what you want to hear. You have the ability with your technology, with social media, with news feeds, with programming, with blogs, whatever you want to add into your information rotation. You can only hear what you want to hear if you're really careful about it. Now, there's a couple of different ways they talk about this. People talk about it being silo, you know, as in intercontinental ballistic missile silos. You're down in this hole and you're bunkered in. You don't see anything but the sky above you and you only react when you're shooting something off. Well, there's truth to that. I get that. I think it's more important than that. This is more like a buffet thing where you go and you just pick off what you want to eat and leave everything else. There's still plenty of good food there. You just chose not to take it in. Let's use an example from this real week. Uh, we talked about the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. Everybody lost their mind. That was on Monday night. We're now on Friday. What in the world were we doing on Monday night? When this news broke, I already wrote about it. We talked about it before in the program. We were just going to watch some Grease because Olivia Newton-John had passed away, sadly. We are going to watch some Grease. We had a little bit of a cookie situation where the cookies didn't turn out just right. You know, normal family stuff. Took a few minutes out of that. We marked on the the case of the Mar-a-Lago search warrant, realized after about 15 minutes that talking heads didn't have any new information whatsoever to give on, and I turned it off and went back about my business. And then as the week has gone on, we've learned a little bit more, not a lot. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland made a statement on Thursday that might change some people's mind. It may not. It may reinforce people's opinions. But now we're on Friday. I just want you to take a minute and think back about the week and the loudest story of that week. When everybody was reacting to this on Monday, let's be really honest about something. Nobody knew anything. They didn't know anything about the warrant. They didn't know anything about the underlying affidavits that get you the search warrant. They didn't know anything about the process. They didn't know whether uh, what was alleged about former President Trump was true or not. Now, as the story developed, we learned things like they had been there in June, like they had been in contact with Trump's folks, that we know that he took material from the White House. And then it further develops. We learn about how the warrant was processed, the judge that signed off on it. All these things started to develop as the week went on. But on Monday night, when the news first broke and people were so outraged or they were so excited that they were finally going to get him this time, you know, that kind of nonsense. If you were just reacting strongly, take a moment and admit to yourself, you didn't really know anything. You just saw the headline processed it through what you wanted to be true or what you thought would be true or how it felt or how it looked. And that's what you were reacting on. We all do it. I'm not condemning you. I do it too. Everybody does it. But maybe we should learn the lesson of not reacting so strongly to things we really don't know what's going on. So now that we're to Friday, here's what happens. Are you going to be open to any new information on this story because you dug in so hard on Monday? Was that initial outrage developed and grooved emotion into you so much that no matter what happens here going out, you've already made up your mind about this story? And I'm just using this as an example. All news stories and all news cycles have this happen to them. They are built for you to react to, for you to click on, to you go running to a TV set, for you to start following people to find out what's going on. That's how the news media is designed to keep you engaged emotionally. But we talk about on this program all the time, turning down the noise, getting to the information, discerning what's going on, and taking that step back to understand these things didn't happen in a vacuum. Donald Trump didn't just show up at Mar-a-Lago. He's got decades and decades of his own behavior to factor into this. The FBI didn't just show up at Mar-a-Lago. They've got decades and decades of history, good and bad, that we have to parse out. And of course, there's political implications to everything that goes on when you're dealing with a former president and the administration of a sitting president. These are complicated issues. They're not going to fit into a nice tight box for you. And they're probably not going to fit your priors real perfectly unless you do what we started out talking about. Silo your information to only hear what you want to hear. That's not what we do here. This isn't the tickle your ears show. This is the get to the truth show. And part of getting to the truth is understanding our own biases and our own priors. And understanding that if you were reacting really strongly on Monday night to this story, when you really didn't know what was going on, because you didn't, be honest, you were assuming, you were guessing, like everybody else, part of the problem with our news media, it starts with us. Good news is that's the part we can fix the easiest. 
because we have control over it. More Hertel right after this. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, a little bit different. Let's talk about some good old-fashioned Yankee ingenuity. This is from ARS Technica. Great website. We'll link to it. Jared Motch, the Michigan man who built a fiber-to-home internet provider because he couldn't get good broadband service from AT&T or Comcast, is expanding with the help of a $2.6 million in government money. When we wrote about Motch back in 2021, he was providing service to about 30 rural homes, including his own, with his ISP, Wastanel Fiber, properties llc Motch now has about 70 customers and will extend his network to nearly 600 more properties with money from the american rescue plans coronavirus state local fiscally recovery funds <laughs> it, the u.s government allocated washington county 71 million for a variety of infrastructure product projects and the county devoted a portion to broadband the county concluded a broadband study before the pandemic to identify unserved location Motch said when the federal government's money became available, the county issued a request for proposals, or an RFP, seeking contractors to wire up addresses that were, quote, they known to be unserved or underserved based on the existing survey. They had this gap-filled RFP, and in my own wild stupidity or brilliance, I'm not sure which yet, I bid on the project in my area and managed to win through a competitive bidding process, he said. Mosh's ISP is one of four selected by Washtenaw County to wire up different areas. Motch's network currently has about 14 miles of fiber, and he's building another 38 miles to complete the government-funded project. In his sparsely populated rural area, I have at least two homes where I had to build a half mile to get to one house, Motch said, knowing that it will cost over $30,000 for each of those homes to get served. The contract between Motch and the county was signed in May of 2022 and requires him to extend his network to an estimated 417 addresses in Freedom, Lima, Lodi, and Scotio Townships. Motch lives in Scotio, which is next to Ann Arbor. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If not, deal with it, Michigan. You'll be okay. Although the contract just requires service to those 417 locations, Motch explained that his new fiber routes would pass 596 potential customers. I'm building past some addresses that are covered by other programs, but very likely to be the first mover in building in those areas. Under contract terms, Motch would provide 100 MPBS uh, systematic internet. I'm, I don't know all these terms. It's going to be up front with you. Y'all can Google it later. With unlimited data for 55 bucks a month. That sounds like a pretty good deal. And one GBPS with unlimited data for $79 a month. Motch said his installation fees are typically $199. Unlike many large ISPs, Motch provides simple bills that contain a large single item for internet service and no extra fees. What a concept. Uh, Spectrum, are you listening? Go talk to this guy because your service sucks. Your customer service sucks even worse, and your product is unreliable. Go let this guy show you how to do it. That's a personal message for me. 
Mox also committed to participating in the FCC's Affordable Connectivity Program, which provides subsidies of $30 a month for households that meet income eligibility requirements. The contract requires all project expenses to be incurred by the end of 2024 and for the projects to be completed by the end of 2026. But Mox aims for a much quicker timeline, telling ARS that his goal is to build about half of it by the end of the year and the other half by the end of 2023. The exact funding amount is $2.6 million. They got it down to the absolute penny here. Operating an ISP isn't Mock's primary job, and he's still a network architect at Akamai, I think you say. He started planning to build his own network about five years ago after being unable to get modem service from any of the major companies. As we wrote it last year, AT&T only offers DSL with download speeds of up to 1.5 Mbps at his home. He said Comcast once told him they were charging 50 grand to extend his cable network to his house. <coughs> <coughs> and that he would have gone with Comcast, they'd only wanted $10,000. Comcast demanded those upfront fees for the line extensions when the customers are outside the network area, even if the rest of the neighborhood is already hooked up to Comcast. Mock was able to use 50 BPS fixed wireless service before switching over to his own fiber network. In addition to his home internet customers, Mock told us he provides free 250 MBPS service to a church that was previously having trouble. Mock said he also provides fiber backhaul to a couple of cell tires for a major mobile carrier. Mock has already hooked up some of the homes on the list of required addresses. Washington County issued a press release saying this creates a path for every household to access high-speed broadband internet. The county says it's investing $15 million in broadband. Uh, the handholes that are buried underground at various points through Mock's network used to cost $300, now about $700. Inflation's getting everybody. While Mock built the network for using his own money, he said one wealthy family last year wrote nearly a six-figure check to fund a network expansion that let them and all their neighbors get internet access. Um, over the last year, Mock was using the rented air compressor to blow out the conduits because they accumulate water. Uh, on the other end, a mile away, people thought it was smoke coming from the ground. They called the fire department. One day, they couldn't figure out what was coming up. Next day, I saw them. I turned around, and I talked to them about it. I saved in people's cell phone as the fiber cable guy. Good old-fashioned Yankee ingenuity. Love it. Uh, great piece you can follow at ARS Technica. There's also some back pieces and background on this guy. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, more heard tell right after this. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Let's go to Africa. We've been talking about it periodically, various things. A lot of geopolitics cross paths down in Africa. It's been that way for hundreds of years. It will be like that for the next hundred years. But right now in the here and now, there's some really important stuff going on with some very familiar world players that we do see in the news media. Let's go to another one of our great Young Voices contributors. He is an intern at the Initiative for African Trade and prosperity. He's studying a master's at the London School of Economics. And if you're from Logan and don't know what that is, they don't just let you walk in there. That's a prestigious thing. That's kind of an important school. Uh, Alexander and how are you, sir? I'm doing good, Andrew. Thank you for the nice introduction. Happy to be here. Happy to talk about Africa. Thrilled to be with you. Let's start big picture. And we deal with truth. We talk all the time. One of our core values on this program is things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Africa has always been somewhat chaotic. Uh, the Horn of Africa and Somalia, that has been conflict for all of yours and mine lifetimes. We know about Somalia, Black Hawk Down, all that stuff. We know the problems in Central Africa. Libya in the north is a failed state. We know about the issues in South Africa, even though that's more of a developed area. They still have problems. Africa has always been a problem. Africa has always had something of a power vacuum. And there's been colonial and imperialistic interest in Africa for as long as there's been recorded human history. These problems aren't new. Just the players are new, and they're familiar players to us, people like China, like Russia. Give us the big picture of what's going on in Africa right now, today. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. I think your your premise is absolutely true. Where Africa was, you know, very big deal back in the Cold War time. Um, you know, different kind of spheres of influence, Soviet influence, uh, American influence, and then fast forward to today, and you know, after about maybe two decades or so, things kind of calming down there in terms of you know who the major players are with the U.S. kind of taking that role. Um, now we see a huge resurgence of you know what I really see as authoritarianism from the Chinese and the Russians. Um, and then the the United States. So if I had to characterize the situation right now, I think you have an interesting play where you have two authoritarian regimes in Russia and China that are slowly and steadily kind of creeping and and um, furthering their interests into that region of the world. And you have the U.S. and the West kind of backtracking and trying to respond to that. Um, so we can get into a little bit about kind of the ins and outs of how that's going on, um, kind of the economic, political, uh, foreign policy interests that each side has. Um, but it is a big deal because Africa is growing, um, not just population-wise, but also economically. Um, they're going to play an increasingly important role uh, as the future goes on. And so I think if the U.S. doesn't respond to, to these threats, um, we'll be in for uh, some, some long-term trouble if we don't make a pivot right now, in my opinion, um, in our strategy down there. So, yeah. What is the biggest thing we need to pay attention to in Western media, though? Because there's a lot of stuff we're going to move. We're going to work through an article that you wrote here in just a second. There's so many moving parts to this. China, Russia. Um, there was just a big CNN report about Russia and doing the gold mining and how they're stripping resources that way. China's after the rare earth minerals because they have a, a lock on the battery and those sorts of things for you know high-end components. There's so much going on. And then there's all the internecine strife inside of Africa that's always been there. Our Western media has never been great at covering Africa. What's some of the core things we need to know before we dig into the details here that a Western audience, an American audience that's not familiar with Africa, that we kind of need to have some ground rules in dealing with something that's so big as this? Absolutely. I think it's really the military considerations. Um, so I'll speak on that briefly, really quickly. Um, over the past five years, China has been extending its military influence into the region, um, which is something they had not been capable of doing before. Um, so back in 2017, they opened their first military base in East Africa um, in a small country called Djibouti. Um, kind of a funny name, but, you know, it's geostrategically positioned in East Africa, um, an important region of the world. And it does beg the question, why would China be attempting to spread its influence into that region? Um, and then recently, there have been fears uh, that have come out from the Department of Defense talking about the potential of China opening another base um, over in West Africa in Equatorial Guinea. Um, that would be their first base uh, in the Atlantic. Um, and so as far as what a Western audience needs to be concerned with, um, this idea that China is slowly moving bases closer um, to, to our region of the world and into regions that they previously had not really been privy to um, is certainly worrying. Now, on the flip side of that, Russia has also been getting increasingly um, interested in African politics and African regimes. Um, they have been doing a very odd sort of strategy where they don't have a lot of economic ties with Russia, but what they've been doing is sending in mercenary forces to often kind of quell rebellions or uh, the threat of Islamic terrorism or things of that nature. And then once their mercenary groups are there, um, the Russians don't tend to leave. And now they kind of have a, a stranglehold um, in certain areas, try to reach into places like the Suez Canal um, and kind of spread their influence that way. So in terms of what's direct, relatable and, and applicable to a Western audience, um, I would certainly say kind of the military jockeying of Russia and China is is definitely something that we need to be very aware of. Um, and if we're not, we can kind of find ourselves behind the eight ball, um, which I know we definitely do not want to do. What is it about China? Because here's the problem with China. The CCP and their many, many minions in social media and in the traditional news media, they they get really upset if you call them imperialistic or colonial. Mm -hmm. There's no other way to describe what they're doing in Africa as imperialistic and colonial. Now, they're not doing it so much militarily, although that's starting to happen as well. They're doing it financially. They're doing yeah. it through offering uh, loans. They're doing it through what I would call, and many others have, predatory debt. And then they foreclose. We've seen this in Sri Lanka and other places. And now we're seeing it in Africa where they use predatory debt to get infrastructure interests and take over important infrastructure, airports, ports, things like this. How do we address that? Because the propaganda arm of China is mighty and it's long reaching. But the facts on the ground say, hey, actions, not words. This is what they're doing and they're doing it purposefully. And they have a long plan involved here. You're absolutely right, Andrew. And I think that 
Um, it would be one thing, you know, if, if China was actually interested in helping, uh, you know, build infrastructure. Um, it, you know, we just want to develop Africa out of the kindness of our hearts. Um, unfortunately, that's certainly kind of not what they are trying to do. Um, you're absolutely right that they do use uh, loans and financing as ways to get countries kind of hooked on Chinese financing. And then they use that to leverage them uh, or to, to have political leverage over those countries in the future. We've seen that very recently. Um, a lot of African countries used to have uh, diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Um, every country in Africa has abandoned Taiwan except for Eswatini, tiny little country in Southern Africa. Um, and China has been putting pressure on them to break off their diplomatic relationship with Taiwan um, and kind of, you know, get rid of that relationship and recognize China as having the right to that area and things like that. So as far as what the U.S. needs to do, that's really the, the, the key to the question here. I think that the U.S., in order to respond to this, needs to prove itself to be um, integral to Africa's development going forward. And they need to make sure that African leaders see us that way. America still is by far the largest consumer market. Um, we are significantly wealthier than China. Um, we have the ability to purchase much more uh, than they do. And so what my opinion is, what we need to do is expand kind of how trade is done with Africa right now and use that as a catalyst to get African states to recognize that we can be the most important partner for them going forward in their development goals, instead of Chinese debt trap diplomacy, which has been getting less and less popular among African leaders, which is a positive sign. So if you want to go into the AGOA a little bit, I think that could be could be a wise idea. Now, here's the problem, and you touched in on your piece. Yeah. Money doesn't solve everything. Money also creates its own set of problems. But it's almost like when we watch like a mob movie where the mob, they're like, hey, if we're fighting, we're not making money. Isn't the pitch, though, with trade? And this is on a very basic level of, hey, everybody can make money here. And if everybody's busy making money, just some of the human nature stuff is they're going to want to keep making money. And when people are fighting, they're not making as much money. That's a really dis distilled down simplistic view of it to take it to a movie after. But that's basically what we're pitching them with free trade is like, look, all of you can rise all boats here. If you stop fighting and do X, Y, Z, and if you get the right kind of partners, that's basically the pitch, right? I think that is part of the pitch. I wouldn't say that's the entire thing. You know, I, I do think that there is appetite in Africa um, for democracy, for human rights. Um, people are very skeptical of Chinese interests, uh, the way China runs its kind of authoritarian grip um, on its own people. And so I wouldn't say that, you know, free trade and wealth is the only motivating factor, but I would certainly say that plays an a integral part. Um, so along with that, what I would say is I believe that African countries that do engage with trade in the United States definitely do benefit. There have been a number of countries um, in the past decade or so that have significantly developed different sectors through um, trading relationships with the United States. Now, whether or not we'll be able to use that as enough leverage to say, hey, abandon Chinese financing and come to us will be um, something only really time can tell. But I would say this for sure. The deepening relationship of economic ties between America and Africa um, is absolutely integral if we want to keep our influence over there. Um, there's a kind of an isolationist mood right now in the United States. Um, I hope that we can kind of work against that as time goes on, um, because like it or not, the world is much smaller than it used to be. And we need strategic partners around the world. And a great way to do that is through economic ties and getting African producers and African consumers to recognize the benefits of having access to the U.S. market. So, yeah, Alexander Joe joining us and a great Young Voices contributor. We're talking Africa. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to dig into this piece he has at 1828 a little bit. We're going to talk about the American policy, what it should be, what we want it to be what it actually is, why those three things can't ever seem to match up at the same time in the same place. More with our friend Alexander on Hertel right after the break. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We got our friend Alexander back on. We're talking Africa. Um, we talk real here. We deal with the real world on this program. Let's just be honest about American policy. 
part of the problem with foreign policy and financial policy, for that matter, is there's a certain amount of inconsistency built into our system. We have presidential elections every four years. Congress turns over every two years. We, The American people tend to like gridlock. They like split government for the most part. Some of this is built into the cake. But when we're dealing with foreign policy, the two most important things when we're dealing with foreign powers is consistency and cohesiveness. People got to know what we're going to do and know that we're going to do it. America has been really, really bad at that for the last 30, 40 years, basically my entire lifetime for the most part since the end of the Cold War. What do we do to change that? Because it's hard to pitch things like we will be your trade partner. China's got a 50-year plan. They don't have the Russian five-year plan. They plan way in ahead. So people are looking like, yeah, I'm making a deal with the devil, but at least I know what I'm getting. That's part of the problem here, yes? Yeah. No, I, I do agree with that, Andrew. And I would say, too, I think what has been a good development in the U.S. is there does seem to be kind of a consolidation from both sides, Republicans and Democrats, that increasing Chinese influence in the world is problematic. Um, I have a lot of disagreements with the Biden administration, but one thing I have enjoyed that they do is they will speak out against China and they sent Pelosi over to Taiwan recently. And so um, they seem to be, in my opinion, willing to fight back against that. So in terms of what we need to do as a national strategy, I absolutely agree. We have had a very disjointed a um, couple decades of policy towards Africa. And for a lot of it, it seems like we kind of took them for granted. They were not necessarily the most important partner of us. Um, and we did not really give them, I think, the uh, respect and, and um, kind of uh, attention that they needed. So going forward, what I think certainly needs to happen is you're absolutely right. A cohesive, coherent strategy about what we want to see from Africa and what they need to see from us. Um, and I think the best way to do that is to A, increase our diplomatic relations and actually begin to speak on the world stage, putting African issues at the very top um, of our foreign policy considerations and B through economic ties. Um, those two combined, if we could really nail those down and prove to African states and African leaders that we mean business, uh, I think that would go a long way in pushing back China's influence um, in, in pretty much the near future, if possible. You use a term in the piece, util utilization strategies. Um, you're, you're bouncing that off of what uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese are doing with the Belt and Road Initiative. They've got billions of dollars they're pouring into that thing. We probably can't do anything like that for a lot of reasons. But break that terminology down for us. Just go through the nomenclature, utilization strategies. What are you talking about? Because, again, this is not theory. This is stuff where you're actually going to have to kind of do some practical stuff to win people over, right? Yes. And now, so in terms of utilization strategies, what that's connected to is the AGOA. So right now, I'll do a quick history on the African Growth and Opportunity Act. This was a uh, bill passed in 2000, basically gives African producers a lot of access to the American market. So goods made in Africa are often duty free, tax free, can be shipped here easier um, and get preferential access to American consumers. It should make it cheaper, easier for them to develop things of that nature. Now, utilization strategies are key in this because currently under the AGOA, they are not required. What a utilization strategy is, is it requires a country um, that has the benefits of trade under the AGOA, and it makes them make a cohesive strategy for how they can use their comparative advantage to take advantage of the access given to them by the U.S. market. So basically, a quick example of that, um, let's say Tanzania comes up with an AGOA uh, utilization strategy about, okay, well, we produce grain. We are able to export that to the U.S. cheaper under the AGOA than other countries around the world because it's specifically a preferential deal for Africa. We're going to make a strategy of how to go about taking advantage of the access we have to the U.S. market. Um, it has worked very well. There's about 18 countries that have made utilization strategies and it's deepened trade ties with America. But when the AGOA gets expanded in 2025, it's kind of up for re-election. Um, um, the AGOA in 2025 is going to be renewed or expanded. Um, and so I believe that we need to make that a requirement where every country needs to have a utilization strategy in order to have a cohesive plan for how to access the U.S. market. And that has been shown to increase trade ties, which I think would go a long way um, in, in deepening economic relationships. So that's what that term means. Um, I'm pushing for that to occur in 2025. Um, I think it would certainly be a wise idea, and I don't really believe there's a good reason not to. How's that going to? How does that look, though? Is that going to be a treaty thing? Is that going to be a UN thing? Is that going to be an, a bilateral with individual countries? Give me a framework for that. Yeah. Well, 
the AGOA is a piece of legislation that was passed by the U.S. Congress. So it's not a U.N. thing. Um, it, it's nothing in that uh, sphere. What it is is a, a way that the U.S. goes about dictating trading relationships with Africa specifically. So it doesn't take into account you know, the U.N. Um, or groups like that. And it's not bilateral in terms of one U.S. state going to a specific single country in Africa. Rather, it deals with Africa as a block of countries um, going forward. Great. Alexander Joe joining us. Uh, just to put a kind of a cap on this, let's go back to where we started. Africa is a big place. It's a diverse place. It's got a lot of moving parts. How important, because again, like we started with, China's consistent more than we are consistently bad, but they are consistent. How do we get this consistency? You talk about this being a good concrete first step. Mm -hmm. What's the second and third step? Because that's the key to the consistency we say that's been lacking in these kind of policies. Yeah, it's a messaging thing, Andrew, you know, and, and it's a U.S. diplomatic ties thing where if the United States federal government wants to portray itself as long term interested in African development, it's going to need to be a more consistent uh, messaging platform from the government. So quick backstory on that. In 2014, Barack Obama held the first U.S. Africa summit. Um, I think that was a good first step in deepening African trade ties. However, seven, eight years have passed. And now the second one will be held in 2022. In my opinion, that's far too long to allow these trade summits not to occur. Um, in my view, that should be a, maybe every two to three years, we're having consistent summits with African leaders, with business leaders, oftentimes in Africa itself, and deepening that relationship going forward. We can't be so sporadic in our choice to engage with them. Um, I think doing that will have a long-term impact, and it will actually much more mirror what the Chinese are doing, where they consistently hold meetings with African leaders, they consistently have envoys down there, they consistently have high-level business executives in Africa, where they're working on building these relationships. So I think expanding the AGOA, following that up with diplomatic ties, um, is really a good recipe to get us on the road to success here. And, you know, there will be things that happen in the future that we can't see right now. Um, but by doing both of those, I think we can do a long, uh, get ourselves on the road to, to kind of winning Africa back into our good graces. Yeah, great stuff, Alexander. Let folks know where they can follow you. We'll have you back on this topic because this isn't going away anytime soon. This is going to be something we're going to be dealing with probably generationally at least. Till we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can follow you. We're going to link to your piece in 1828. Please read the entire thing. Tell us where they can find you and follow you until we get you back, my friend. Yeah, well, you guys can find me on Twitter at A-J-E-L-L-O-I-A-N. Ajeloyan, uh, also, I would encourage you to check out our uh, website at uh, theiatp.org. That's Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity. We do a lot of work on Sub-Saharan Africa, different trade deals and policies that are going on down there, um, trying to spread economic freedom and free trade uh, going forward. So that's where you can find me. Yeah, and we're going to keep covering Africa because it's a big part of the world, and the other parts of the world are all converging there. Alexander Gio, and great having you, sir. We'll have you back soon. Thank you for the time. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Okay, we are going to get back to something we used to do on Hertel before the uh, initial itineration of this show, before we started doing the daily program that we do now. Uh, one of the things about this format, because we do cut it for radio and media and other things, is we kind of get a little bit limited on the time with our guests. Not that we already don't go long. We always do at least two segments with them. But even sometimes there's some topics we want to get deeper on. So we're going to bring back the deep dives. Uh, this will be something that comes out on the weekends. It's separate from the daily show. We have 36 of the old school podcast versions of Herd Tell. They're all really great. We're really proud of them. You can find all of them on all the platforms, uh, iTunes, Spotify. You can watch them on YouTube. We've done some effects that you can watch them if you like. But these will have full video on them. And we're going to deep dive some very important subjects. We've already got the first couple of them lined up. And the first one will be out this Saturday morning. Our friend Chris Schlock 
was down at CPAC in Dallas. A lot of national headlines about it. He was in the room. We're going to turn down the noise, talk to somebody that was actually there and some of the things that went on, like the viral moments, like some of the craziness that goes on, the reactions, the attendance, all the stuff, the national narratives. We're going to go inside of CPAC, somebody that was actually there, deep dive it, talk about the big names and the average people that were in the halls. It's important stuff. It's a good topic. Chris Schlock, another one of our great Young Voices contributors, he was there and he explains it to us. This is one part of that interview that's going to be coming out Saturday morning in our deep dive. Enjoy it. When you're when you're doing this, you talk. I know the silly folks start to trend really, really fast. You dealt with some of the tweeting some of them out on your social media. Um, what's the really ones that kind of got your attention? Because you get the folks in the convention hall that are let's just call it what it is. They're kind of getting their attention, that sort of thing. What's a couple of those? Because you tweeted some of them out, but what's the ones that kind of really jumped out at you? A few of them. Yeah. So uh, one of them that I did tweet out was uh, um, Brandon Straka. He's the founder of um, hashtag walk away, which is about former Democrats walking away from the Democrat party. He's a really Trumpy kind of guy. And um, he was at January, he was at the Capitol on January 6th and um, he got arrested for, you know, a litany of things at um, the Capitol. And um, so he put on this performance art where uh, they had like an actual cage next to the walkaway booth. And um, he had an orange jumpsuit and a MAGA hat on and he um, sat in a chair in the cage and uh, pretended to cry um, for like hours. Like I was actually a little impressed by how, how long he was able to pretend to cry and every once in a while he would get up from his chair and um right on the chalkboard um it, you know where's everybody and you know he'd count the days um on on the chalkboard too and um so i was i was um getting pictures of that and all and and then all of a sudden you know these huge security guys come over and you know they they, they push everyone away and you know next thing i know marjorie taylor green is like right in front of me and then she goes inside the cage with Brandon and like gets on her knees and like pretends to wipe away his pretend tears <laughs> and like pretends to console him. And, and then um, some, some random guy um, in front of the cage just uh, like, you know, extends his arms and like, you know, pretends to, I guess, be in solidarity with them. And so he just starts, um, he starts saying the Lord's prayer and everyone starts doing it with them. And um, people were saying, you know, Margie Taylor Green went in there to to pray with Brandon, but no, some random dude just started praying out loud, and uh, everyone just joined along. So um, it just kind of reached peak absurdity at that point. So I just took a picture of that and posted it on Twitter, and um, it 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 went pretty viral. Marjorie Taylor Green part, and then a few people have picked up on the struggle part. But you're saying this went on for hours? Oh yeah, he was he was crying for hours until he had to speak, um, and that that speech. Um, was really aggressive. So it, it didn't seem like it went um, as planned. Um, he he was on a panel with um, this guy, um, Representative um, Brian Babin. He's a, he's a representative for Texas Congressional 36 District. And um, he was talking about how no congressman called him at all when he was sitting in a jail cell, which he never did. He never sat in a jail cell. So he lied about that. Um, he actually um got out of jail time because he was cooperating with the feds and uh, ratting out all of his buddies at January 6. So um he was complaining he was you know a acting like he was a victim he was you know getting really upset and he was basically turning the crowd against Brian Babin just this one congressman and saying why didn't you do anything and Brad Babin was you know a little shaken you know he his voice was shaky and people were just like from the crowd heckling him and saying, why didn't you do anything? Well, you know, what's wrong with you? And like, it, it got really bad. And it was after that moment that everyone showed up at the um, walkaway booth and the Marjorie Taylor Green thing happened. And it, it just, yeah, like I said, reached peak absurdity at that point. Because we only get to see the glimpses and you're there. Did the Mar the Marjorie Taylor Green was that planned or spontaneous? How what is your feel on especially with the context think, you just gave with the speech? What was yeah. that planned? That had to be planned yeah, then, right? It, it had to be planned because she was talking about no congressman calling her and all that. 
I mean, call, calling him and all that. And so I, I'm, I assume Marjorie Taylor Greene got word of that or she was listening to the speech. And so she, um, in an act of performance, um, showed up and um, pretend, pretended to console him. But, you know, since he was, you know, going so hard at Brian Babin for not co contacting him, I'm, I was actually surprised that she, that I mean, that he um, let, her, you know, play along in his performance art because she never called him either, right? So, like, I, I mean, I was, I was surprised. Like, why, why is, why is he playing along with her? Why isn't he like calling her out for, you know, not calling him while she was in the cage? Yeah, some there was definitely some emails exchanged or text messages, <laughs> and that got planned out. Let's be honest here. Obviously, yeah. though, if he's going after a sitting congressman, they're all up for election, so somebody's somewhere in there. On Twitter, it was fun watching it because, of course, you know, I'm a I'm of a different group. So I was watching it on Twitter unfold and everybody was they were all immediately like, wait a minute. He's the guy that ratted everybody else out. And that's why he's not in prison. But did people there in the room not put those two? together? They got Google on their phone, right? They could Google who this guy is while they're standing there. Did you see any hint oh, of that or was it just oh, going no. on with the show? No, every, everyone was very supportive of him. Everyone believed every word he said. And this guy was definitely swindling everyone, but everyone um, was like pretending like there were people. I'm not sure if they were actually crying, but there were people who were like actually crying, like seeing him cr like pretend to cry. Um, and um, they also gave out like silent disco headsets to, um, to to hear what Brandon was saying. But also there was like multiple channels and one channel um, you get to hear what the stories of other January 6 prisoners um had and um yeah people were seemed you know very upset about what was going on and um there were a lot of reporters around the cage and one of them had a mask on and so people started to target her <laughs> um she was a reporter from vice and um one person was really loud and really vocal saying you know she's from vice she's going to slander him you know just really defend really defensive of uh of uh brandon straka and uh, people like started to sort of like crowd around her and um, she had a, and you know, before she could like, before it got like bad, um, that's when Marjorie Taylor Greene showed up. And so the focus was now on Marjorie Taylor Greene, not on this, you know, vice reporter who's just taking pictures and trying to do her job. <laughs> Did you see a lot of uh, other instances of that? Because CPAC's a big event, although this isn't as big as the national one, but Trump was there, so obviously it was a heightened event. Did you see a lot of regular mainstream press, for lack of a better term? Were they there? Were they kind of a low-key presence? Was there other incidences like that? Um, to me, it seemed like most of the mainstream press showed up um, on the third day when Trump was speaking. Um, but... Um, regarding like just walking around um there there were maybe just a few reporters doing that i, I know vice is known for um going to right-wing events and like reporting on you know quote-unquote extremism um but that's like just a vice thing so i, I didn't i couldn't i didn't really get to see the credentials of um everyone else but uh yeah i mean i talked to her and um she said that um, she was, you know, she was being targeted all day because of her mask, you know, <laughs> like she was doing with the mask. There was more people with masks on in the media than, you know, in the whole audience. So people could easily tell, like, she's not on our side. Yeah. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell Show. You know we always end on a good note. This one comes from a very good friend of ours, uh, Rufus, Rufus Hickok. 
is a great contributor at Ordinary Times. Make sure you're following him. He writes a column every Sunday at Ordinary-Times.com. Tremendous, tremendous gifted writer. Also has a great book out that you ought to check out. We'll link to it in the show notes. He put, he sent us this one, pointed it out on social media to us uh, from the New York Times. When the pandemic caused food banks to shut down in March 2020, two soup kitchen volunteers, Mahmoud Mahmoudi and Sasha Allenby, borrowed a baker's friend's kitchen to make hot meals for people in need. And that evolved into EV Loves NYC, a nonprofit that churns out 2,000 meals every Sunday from its headquarters at 6th Street Community Center in the East Village. The food is not typical soup kitchen fare. Every weekend, volunteers prepare dishes. They reflect the cultural heritage of the chef in charge. That means they are then packed into cars, vans, bike carts, and backpacks to be delivered to New Yorkers across all five boroughs. Some 30 organizations, including aid groups, churches, mosques, help with the distribution. Mr. Mamoudi, 35, and Ms. Allenby, 49, both of whom have kept their full-time job despite the 40 hours a week they devote to E.B. Loves New York City, are also a couple. Of course they are. They're cute, too. There's some pictures here. The march, they moved from the East Village to Brushwick, Brooklyn. Um, and there's an interview of him, both of them together. They talk about it. There's lots of pictures. I want to point out this one quote to there, though. But um, at the end on the late shift, um, she said this, I'm there for cleanup. I'm not particularly a neat freak, but I'm very conscious that the community center is not our space. We rent it, so I want to be respectful and leave it better than I found it. And then Mahmood chopped in, Mahmoudi, excuse me. The last thing we want to do we close up is yell, anyone here? It started as a joke, but now it's a tradition, like the closing bell. It's a big community center. We want to make sure nobody fell asleep under the benches. And then she chipped in the prepared packages of food are lined up in the alley, and the organizers turn up to pick it up. And he says, we go home on the L train. Long live the L train. It's a really cute interview. It's very good work. Appreciate Rufus bringing this to our attention. We always love to end on a good note. Food charities, they always get bumped to the front of the line. That's how we do things here on Hertel, and that's how we did it this week. That's the end of the week. You made it to the weekend. Congratulations, folks. Contact us at Hertelshow at gmail.com. Hertelshow on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. We do whole segments, whole episodes based off your feedback, things you want. We did the Alzheimer's uh, episode because y'all asked about it. Said, hey, we're seeing these headlines. We don't understand it. We reached out, got a whole episode out of it. You can do that, too. Reach out. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you have a good weekend. Wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed and we can't wait to see you again for our next herd tell. Take care. All the music on herd tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.